This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. The military health system is a vital component of our national security strategy. With a diverse offering of healthcare services, logistics, public health, research and training, and supporting our armed forces, the Defense Health Agency, DHA, is an integral component of the military health system, serving as a strategic enabler, ensuring a medically ready force and a ready medical force that seeks to improve readiness, health, care, and lower costs. More than ever, DHA is tasked with leading these efforts to create a more integrated system of readiness and health. What are DHA's strategic priorities? How is DHA working to create a more integrated healthcare system? And what is DHA doing to improve the readiness and health of its service members? We'll explore these questions and so much more with a very special guest, Vice Admiral Raquel Bono, Director of the Defense Health Agency. Vice Admiral, welcome to the show. Thank you. you. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, I was, I'm delighted to be here. Also joining us from IBM is Mark Newsom. Mark, welcome. Glad to be here. So, um, Vice Admiral, uh, before we delve into specific initiatives, would you provide us with an overview of, of the Defense Health Agency's mission? How has it evolved since its inception? Oh, great. Well, we have been in evolution for some time now, as, as you'll probably recall. We were actually stood up in 2013, and we reached full operating capability in 2015. And that's when I came in in November of 2015 as the second director of the Defense Health Agency. And what we did at that time is we had an opportunity to see how could we help create efficiencies and savings for the military health system. And one of the first places we looked at were the ten, were 10 shared services. And these represent about 85% of the shared functions and processes that occur across Army, Air Force, and Navy medicine. Things like logistics, health information technology, the TRICARE health plan, education and training, pharmacy, things like that that we knew happens across all of the services. So that was the first initial part of the DHA, the Defense Health Agency portfolio. In addition to that, we also had oversight of the national capital region and the market there in running the care through the direct system, the direct care system, uh, through Walter Reed and Fort Belvoir and some of the clinics. And then the third thing that we had as a defense health agency is we were also designated as a combat support agency. And what that means is that we provide actual direct support to the combatant commands. And that's something that I think is is a, a very a pivotal and important task, especially as the president and the secretary of defense and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs are articulating their national strategies for military security and defense security. So I, th- I think the, the timing is great. Mm-hmm. And in each of those three areas that I just described, 
we've we've not only experienced uh, additional evolution, but we've cre- created greater maturation and understanding of how we can contribute to the effectiveness and efficiency of the, the military health system. Our actual uh, portfolio in terms of a budget yes. is close to $50, $51 billion a year. And that includes all of the elements that support the military health system, military construction, personnel, training, equipment, and things like that. Because out of that, we also have $15 billion that um, we use for the TRICARE health plan. So it's, it's, a, it's a very um, broadly um, dispersed, uh, has significant financial resources attached to that. Uh, we have a significant number of personnel as well, both military and, and civilian. And depending on where we are here in the National Capital Region, uh, we have in excess of 7,000 people dispersed in a variety of ways doing a lot of different tasks. And then there are other personnel that we have in, in other areas. So with all these changes, Admiral, um, what are some of your, say, say, top three management challenges that you faced and how have you sought to address those challenges? The first one is, is the NDA 2017. And in NDA 2017, not only do we um, uh, have the oversight of the budget now, <clears throat> and I already told you what the budget looks mm-hmm. like, um, and uh, military construction, health information technology, not only do we have that kind of oversight and, and authority, we also are going to be expanding that to make sure that we're running the hospitals in a more standardized way. Because we also want to have a health system. We also want to co-create a health system that is is truly designed with our patients in mind. Actually, they help us be the architects for that, that healthcare system. So it's an important piece that, that as we integrate our patients into the design of their healthcare system, we're also, in a stepwise fashion, creating a much more robust, integrated system of readiness and health. So I see that as, as one of the greatest opportunities with the NDA 2017. The second area that I think has a lot of, of just, uh, you know, an abundance of, of opportunities here is in the DOD and, and military health system reform. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I'm sure industry is paying attention to that very closely. The second line of effort that he have is allies and partners. And and while I know that the traditional thinking is how do we make and create these allies and partners with nations nations through their military, is there a role that we can help with what we do in the military health system? And then the big um, line of effort that Secretary of Defense has talked about is is um, bringing business reform to DOD. And, I mean, what better place to try that than in the health sector? And actually, I think my my timing happens to be just great because you know that that's one of the things that are constantly uh, assailing the civilian and private uh, health sector is, is how, do we, how do we do this in the best way possible, in a sustainable way? And then the third area, and this will probably be a, a – I know that Mark is, is going to be very familiar with this. I think the third area where I, I see great momentum being generated is in the deployment of MHS Genesis, our new electronic health record. And while it's easy to say, oh, it's an electronic health record, I think you, bo- you both know that it's a lot more that's than about as e- That's the only thing that's easy to yes, say. Yes, it's just to say it. Exactly. <laughs> because, you know, what we're talking about is, you know, profound change management. Yes, yes. And I think that is a real mind shift. You know, you have to be prepared in order to really fully realize and capitalize on such a powerful tool. You have to be willing to change the way you do business. 
along with challenges, there are always unexpected or unanticipated surprises. And what has surprised you most since uh, taking on this role? Well, every day is an adventure, right? (laughs) So I think that's that's one way of of describing the experience. But I'll I'll tell you, the the actual surprise or the thing that is actually more gratifying, more than surprising, is that some of the solutions are actually quite straightforward. You know, when uh, if I could pivot back to MHS Genesis and our deployment of that, being able to adopt uh, new workflows, either in the clinical or business realm, when you look at it just, you know, in isolation, that solution set is extremely elegantly simple. Yes. You know, how do we use this tool to go from point A to point B in a more efficient way, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's just a very straightforward approach. But it's interesting to me, and I guess this is the surprise, is that how we have actually accommodated our previous systems to try to get around it and how many stop-offs or how many deviations did we take to go from point A to point B in the past, not necessarily because that's how we wanted to do it, but because our tools at the time didn't support taking a more direct route. So I'd like to understand more about your, your leadership style. Um, what makes an effective leader? What are some of the key principles that you follow that inform your efforts? I think that what I, I try to always be mindful of is, is first being mindful. And I think you and I, we'd spoken a few minutes earlier about being in the moment. Yes. You have to be present. You really need to be present. And, and I, I, I don't take that lightly because you have to be present in order to be attentive and listen. And I think that is one of the greatest um, skills or one of the greatest tools that I think leaders have to have is the ability to listen and really hear what what somebody else is telling you because change is always challenging and if you're not if you're not tuned in to what others are telling you then you might miss that opportunity to help make that shift a little easier or that you know that movement a little smoother and so I think being attentive and listening is something that I feel is an important aspect of of what I bring to my leadership style. The other thing that I feel is extremely important is being inclusive. And inclusive is something, is a term that gets thrown around, but the way I I like to do that is um, inclusive and, and diversity seem to go hand in hand. But I've come to appreciate that diversity is really all about perspective. So if I'm trying to be inclusive, how do I gain the perspective of others? What is the best way that I can gain the perspective of others? And I think Mark has had personal experience of sitting in one of my meetings, or maybe several. <laughs> several. <laughs> several. And, and he has seen what, what happens in those meetings is that I, I typically make it a point at one point in the meeting, usually as we're wrapping up, to ask everybody what they think. Oh, wow. And so we go around the room, and I not only ask the people around the table, I ask the people who are around the room to give me thoughts on what they're, what they're thinking. It might have something to do with what we talked about. It could be something that is totally a totally different subject. But what it does, it gives me perspective. And it's, it's interesting what you learn when you understand someone's perspective. Um, so I, I think that even if it might seem, you know, not particularly related it gives me insight into where that person might be in that moment and what might be important to them. And if if I want them to be a part of my team, then this this leads to the my third attribute or the third characteristic is engagement. Yeah. Perfect. yeah. Mm-hmm. So if I know where somebody's at, then it, it helps me understand 
how the best way to engage them. You know, how do I get to where they are? And then how do we figure out how we want to move? And then how do we create that collective impact? So, uh, you know, there I could go through a whole bunch of other things, but you does pick that... up on those are wonderful. But how does you know your background as a as a surgeon? Uh-huh. How have you taken some of what you learned as, uh, as an active surgeon yeah. to your life now, if you will? The, the truth is, is that for me as a surgeon, it was so important for me to connect with my patients. Okay. And many of the t- many times, I mean, patients don't come in just for the sake of having surgery, right? They usually need surgery for some reason. And so recognizing that when patients come to me as a surgeon, they have already, I mean, there are a whole host of emotions that they're experiencing. And, you know, my ability to put them at ease and be able to hear what's going on and to be under, and to understand what they would like to see as, you know, coming out of the surgery or, or what some of the things are that are really weighing heavily on them how can I be more responsive and attentive to meeting their needs while I'm also taking care of any surgical needs that they have? So just that piece has really sensitized me to understanding that everyone comes in with some kind of emotional state that if I can tune into quickly and, and appreciatively, then we can start having that conversation and, and engaging in, and even with my patients, creating that collective impact. So, um, so that's that's a part of of my leadership that I got from my experience as as a surgeon, and and I think then, you know, just as a follow on, uh, and I, again, Mark has seen this, is that that my experience as a surgeon and understanding the hospital system also attuned me to where some of the opportunities are for creating more efficiencies and and how we can actually drive change in in a more meaningful way. What are the strategic priorities for the Defense Health Agency? We will ask its director, Vice Admiral Raquel Bono, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How are autonomous technologies advancing in healthcare? What is being done to enhance medical device design? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and more with Professors Jin O'Han and Manifa Van Cook from the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Maryland. Next week on a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. Our guest today is Vice Admiral Raquel Bono, Director of the Defense Health Agency. My co-host today from IBM is Mark Newsom. Now, Admiral, I'd like to maybe get a little bit more specific around your key strategic priorities. And if you want to, maybe for the first two quarters of this year, 2018, where are you focusing your time? Yeah. Oh, wonderful question. And, and I have some really great real-time examples. So, um, 
uh, have uh, my one of the things that I believe about leadership. It's it's all about being able to make change happen. And being a leader, being an effective leader, means that you also help create the conditions in which other people can modify or align their behaviors so that we're all pulling in that same direction. So a really good example of one of the things that took up quite a bit of my bandwidth uh, leading into to, uh, 2018 was the NDA 2017. Mm-hmm. And one of, the, one of the statutes or one of the stipulations of that statute had us changing the health care plan to modernize it to a more commercial-like or a more private type of health care plan. This is a significant lift for the military health system. You know, we, we have not been accustomed to going to enrollment periods and doing that on, on, a, on an annual basis and requiring everybody mm-hmm. to enroll. On top of that, we were also bringing on board some new uh, managed care support contractors, our partners who help us create those um, networks around our facilities or where our patients are. So we were bringing on two new vendors, two new partners at the same time that we were going to be introducing a new health care plan. And it all had to happen on 1 January 2018 by statute, by law. Now, one of the things that was a, a pivotal piece in there was what is the process we use for management, identity management? Because as you, you know, as you understand, if we're moving to an enrollment, then how do we make sure that our patients are identified in a system and then enrolled into a new health care plan? So the part, though, that was so um, exciting and fascinating and challenging mm-hmm. was realizing that the system that we were working with, the, um, the identification system that the DOD uses, DEERS, you've probably mm-hmm. heard yes. about it, we realized that their ability to do that was limited by the current configuration of its of that program. So I had to look and 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 start looking at can I do we have enough time that that program can be reconfigured to meet our needs or are there commercial solutions I should look for. So I think that's one of the things that I find as uh, an area of opportunity and, and challenges. How do I increase the interface that the DHA has, the Defense Health Agency has with industry? Mm-hmm. And so that is one of the I, – I fully recognize and I, I love that DOD doesn't have to come up with all the answers. Because yeah. oh, yeah. I think, you know, I should look to see who else is doing it and who else might have a better solution out there. And if they do, how do I bring that into our milieu? So I think that's that's one of the things that, that I think has been a real driver for making some of these change happen is, is how do we engage with industry more. And um, again, Mark, you've been in, in many of, of sure. our events where I've actually had industry days and reverse industry days. Oh, interesting. So I think that that is one of, one of those things. Uh, I mentioned MHS Genesis. And um, uh, that has given me kind of a new prism into how I ought to be thinking about what are the second and third order benefits of having a new electronic health system? When you bring up the uh, the electronic health record and the issue around interoperability, and the express it's 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 a, it's a clinical termination of, of, of the expression of jointness. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways. And what I want to talk about now it's a bit of a switch in gears, but it's to celebrate the success of the joint trauma system. Yeah. Could you tell us more about that and how does that provide? 
a, fr- a common framework for healthcare going forward. So the joint trauma system is, uh, you're right, it is a model for how we want to move going forward. And, and just to give you a little bit of background, one of the things in the last 16 years of, of war that we learned is that we have to be able to work across the services. There, you're right. There is a certain amount of interoperability and even inter, you know, interchangeability that we have to develop in order to be the most effective. We could not have had the success that we had on the battlefield had we not been able to work across Army, Air Force, Navy to make these things happen, and the Marines, because the Marines have their, their medical support as well. And so it's, it is that jointness that allowed us to have one of the highest survivabilities, and it had one of the, we have one of the lowest died-of-wounds rates because of that jointness that you talk about. And so I think... Um, that is, is a significant part of it. But the other part that I think is so compelling is that what drove that behavior change is being able to look at our data and understand what our data was telling us. Yes, because we now had a system. We now created a system where we were actually from tooth to tail monitoring what we were doing and then being able to understand as that, as that data uh, accumulated and we aggregated and looked for those patterns we saw that there were certain clinical pathways that we all needed to adhere to in order to consistently get the type of outcome that we desired. And so that gave us uh, opportunities to see, well, what kind of measures of effectiveness can we put in place here? Or how do we know we're doing the right thing? And, and so that is definitely the, the template I'm using going forward in assessing any of our, our processes and our, our functions. The other piece about that, and, and this really gets to how do you sustain it? Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of management metrics should I be looking at? And, and how do I know when we're veering off course and course correct earlier rather than in reaction to when we're off, totally off yeah. course down the road? So I, I think you're absolutely right. The way we've done the joint trauma system, the way those folks came together across the services, looked at data, did some rigorous and disciplined analysis of that. And then, and this was the challenging part, re- applying that new knowledge to their, their behaviors. And the fact that they pulled that off, the fact that we pulled that off, is, is a real measure of success. As a follow-up, um, what has Congress directed DHA to do to strengthen JTS? And how is the Defense Health Agency working to better share the lessons learned between civilian and military. Oh yeah, I you know that's that's another wonderful wonderful opportunity, and it's just one of those things too that, you know, I like bragging about. So thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so as you know, uh, uh, Congress has the JTS coming within the Defense Health Agency, and what that allows us to do now is be able to support and enable what we've not only learned in the early years of the JTS, but also help sustain that and move that forward. I think the real benefit, though, is taking what we learned there and, and, and using that as how we want to apply our own thinking going forward in all the other functions that we're doing in the military health system. And, and, and to that point, you'll see that we've partnered with the American College of Surgeons because they realize with our, our experience and what we've done with our trauma system and our trauma capability, they feel that there's a real need for us, sadly, to be able to share that expertise to the, to the rest of the, the community, you know, the rest of the nation. A real measure of how that is, is, is demonstrating its value is that um, in our care of the wounded warriors, uh, particularly the wounded warrior amputees, 
we've developed such a high level of sophisticated learning and application of that learning to the recovery and the treatment and the rehabilitation of our wounded warriors that outside outside entities, organizations, and institutions are looking to us to help them understand it, whether it's it's nation states, uh, other countries, other allied partners and countries who are experienced that have come and learn from us how to how do we take care of our amputees as as well as some members of the Boston Marathon bombing. Yes. So some victims of that event. So I think that our ability in the in the Defense Health Agency to better support that really gives that body and and that expertise even even greater opportunity to become part of what we do, become more a part of the fabric of the military health system. Could you explain the impact you expect from MHS Genesis? And how is MHS Genesis a unique step forward for DOD and for MHS? And what lessons have been learned from the initial implementation and how the initial strategy has been informed? MHS Genesis is is just been an incredible opportunity. Um, and I know that I use that word a lot, but um, I'll, I'll go to the thesaurus to see if I can't find right. another word. <laughs> sure. but, um, here's here's what, what I would ask you to pay attention to, though. Um, we deliberately went to commercial off-the-shelf product. Mm-hmm. That was huge. Sure. I don't know if anyone was paying attention to that, uh-huh. but that was, that was big. That was a big decision. And we went to that deliberately. We went to it because we realized that, again, we are not in a position to come up with some of these solutions. And at the speed that technology is, is moving and the rate of, of change and discovery that's happening out there, it's far better for us to see if we can't capitalize on what's already out there in industry. So we went for a commercial off-the-shelf product. We also wanted to have something that had a proven track record. And we also wanted that if we once we had this product, that we would also be able to keep pace with the upgrades and the improvements. And so that was a real that was something that was a very large part of the requirements that we had, as we started describing what we were looking for. We also recognized that in uh, acquiring a new electronic health record, especially as a commercial off-the-shelf uh, product, it would force us. It would be a real turning mechanism for the mm-hmm. MHS to glance inward, to look inward, and say, "Are we doing things in a way, or, or how are we doing things? And is that really the best way to do things? Is that really the best way for us to move a patient from the emergency department to the ward? Is that really the best way for us to manage our prescriptions?" It it really forced that conversation, and so in doing that, it also created these prisms, these apertures, we, we can now look to see, well, how do these other things now fit into how we run our, our military health system? So I think that's kind of like at, right off, that was what we'd anticipated. You now know that in, in four of our sites, we've done our initial deployment. And as part of that, and as part of our deployment plan, we're taking a look and saying, okay, what lessons have we learned? And what do we need to do to make sure that we continue to be successful in our future deployment sites? There are three areas that have come that I'm very keenly you know, aware of and that have given me some real insight into what we need to do more consistently and maybe in slightly different ways in order to make sure subsequent deployment sites are successful. So the first thing is the infrastructure. You know, there has to be the right platform, network. I'm, I've, now I've exhausted what I know about the infrastructure. But the, that piece is extremely important, including in user devices. You know, We have to make sure that those pieces, the hardware, the infrastructure, are the right, the right pieces. 
that are in the right configuration, that the, you know, that I have the right circuits. The second piece was the actual technical deployment of MHS Genesis. And as a Cerner Millennium product, um, you know, they had a, a, a great deal of expertise in doing that. So learning from industry was an extremely important part of that. The third area is the part that as I went out to look at other healthcare systems who had undergone a similar transformation with electronic health record, they pointed out something to me, a couple of things to me that have really borne out in our experience, and that is is the governance of, of any type of IT within an organization. We need to be more streamlined. You can't have a thousand points of light making the decision, and, and you can't decide that it's, it's going to be what ha- makes everybody happy. You have to have a decision-making process that has the enterprise perspective in mind all the time. So those are those are some of the things that we're experiencing. And very excited now. We're, we're, we're looking at Pacific Northwest. We're making sure that we've got all the right pieces. And then you know that we'll be looking at our other future deployment sites. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. Um, you mentioned something about how things fit in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how has the strategic value of this acquisition been bolstered uh, with the decision by the Department of Veterans Affairs to acquire the same commercial health information system? How does this benefit both departments? Are there plans in to work and collaborate with the VA uh, during their implementation and transition of the system? You know, I when I first came into this, I had um, I had thought interoperability was really limited to how well DOD and VA interoperate. <laughs> I was I was quickly disabused of that, you know, and I became to appreciate interoperability in a much broader way. But this is this is fantastic. I mean, you look at the two largest federal health systems, and our agreement, our collective agreement to use the same product is going to create a level of interoperability and transparency that we can now afford to our, our veterans and our military personnel and the family members. This is just incredible. Now we can truly go from cradle to grave in terms of being able to track how our health care is, is delivered. Yeah, it's it's got a profound impact. And, um, you know, we have a level of interoperability now. We do share information in a way that is effective, but it's probably not the most effective way, and it's definitely not the most efficient way. Well, I, I want to switch gears a little bit. Earlier you mentioned the TRICARE health plan. Mm-hmm. So could you elaborate on some of the reforms and changes to the plan? Uh, the first thing that we did is we simplified our TRICARE health plan. Um, and this is, this is we, had, we used to have three plans. We had uh, TRICARE Prime, TRICARE Standard, and TRICARE um, Extra. Mm-hmm. So we went from TRICARE Prime to TRICARE Select, just two plans. And the TRICARE Prime is the more managed care and TRICARE Select is a, a PPO, preferred provider type of thing. So that was one of the things we did. So we made it easy for our patients to do. And then we looked at what is, how can we make it even easier for our patients to choose. So we looked at what do we need to do to provide auto-enrollment. That was something that, you know, it's a new, it's a new uh, uh, behavior for, for a lot of our beneficiaries. Then we decided we needed to mirror the um, enrollment periods that we all currently have with the federal employment, uh, the FEHBP. Mm-hmm. And so their enrollment period is November to December. So we're mirroring that, and we're going to a calendar calendar year enrollment. The other thing that we're putting in are our copays, fixed copays. So we had previously been cost share, and that's that's sometimes you know it's it's a moving target, and it's hard to plan and budget for that. So we wanted to make it as as easy as possible, and so we went to fixed copays. 
Now, we have a, a you know slight nuance with that. We have fixed copays that are a slightly different rate for those people who are on active duty before 2018. Mm-hmm. And then we have a slightly different copay and enrollment fee for those people who come into the service after 2018 and once they retire. So there is that, there is that, that, that slight difference there. Um, the other thing that we also uh, put into our health care plan is we identified qualifying life events so that we could give people the opportunity to change pl- plans if they needed to when those, when those qualifying life events you know, dictated a change in, in their health plan was needed. So we think that those are things that are actually allowing us to mirror what private industry is doing, and it gives our beneficiaries um, greater greater choice in, in how they ensure that they're getting the health care plan that works for them. Pharmacy benefit. The MHS provides a very robust pharmacy benefit. Uh, can you elaborate on efforts to reduce pharmacy costs and what are some of the innovative ways that the MHS manages and delivers the pharmacy benefit? So uh, pharmacy and the pharmacy benefit is is probably one of our strongest benefits for our, our patients. We have a very robust um, uh, formulary. Uh, but I think it, you're right. I mean, it is also a real cost driver. And, and one of the ways that we look at that is is how well can we manage the supply chain of, of our, our pharmaceuticals. Um, so we've we've done a, a very, I, I believe, a very competitive effort in in making sure that we're monitoring and managing the costs of our our pharmaceuticals. We also know, though, that um, with our our beneficiaries, and this is something that is new, that there's there are new uh, pharmacy copays, and the cost sharing in that regard, uh, we feel was was uh, just a moderate increase. But we also gave um, uh, opportunities. We gave other um, choices for our patients that they could pursue, and, and so they can also they can get their medications at the MTF, which they have no cost to that. They can receive their medications at retail and the retail pharmacies, where there there is a, a slightly higher cost and copay for that. Or they can also sign up for the mail order pharmacy, and that's actually between in terms of cost to the, the beneficiary is it's slightly between the um, the MTF option and the uh, retail option. How is DHA changing the way DoD delivers healthcare? We will ask Vice Admiral Raquel Bono, director of the Defense Health Agency, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. 
The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. Our guest today is Vice Admiral Raquel Bono, Director of the Defense Health Agency. My co-host today from IBM is Mark Newsom. So, Admiral, one of the biggest issues, and you've mentioned this earlier in healthcare, is bending the cost curve. Um, what are you doing to slow or reduce ever-increasing healthcare costs for the military medicine? And how does the performance improvement around military treatment facilities factor into doing this? I think that's a, I think that's probably the most pivotal piece of bending that cost curve. And one of the things that I'm I, we're looking at is as we look at our military treatment facilities, we have to ask: Have we optimized where we've put or where we've invested? the majority of our resources. Mm-hmm. So first you have to find where you've invested all your resources. They tend to be in our large MTF, our large military treatment facilities. They tend to be in areas where we have a, a significant, uh, sizable patient population. And when you look there, then you, you start asking questions like, how are we delivering the care? How often are we seeing the benefit that we expected to get from that? How responsive are we to our patients' needs? And, and how well are we or how mindful are we of what it costs us to actually do this? And I think that one of the things that, that is a, a new perspective that we have to develop is understanding that cost is not an independent variable. And it, it's a little challenging because our financial system is, is not necessarily the commercial type fee-for-service and billing and all that. So it's a closed system. But that doesn't mean that we can't look at things in a, in a, in a similar business-like way to understand where our costs are going and what's driving those costs. So I've become very um, in tune with margins <laughs> and, and, and what that means and, and, you know, opportunity costs and things. But a lot of that comes down to how well we, we run the, the MTFs. Uh, do we know what our actual capacity is? Have we fully made that capacity available to our patients, and what are we doing to make sure that our patients have access to our our facilities? And then the plan part, the TRICARE Health Plan, is how well have we created a system that's integrated between the direct care, the military treatment facilities, and the purchase care, the managed care support contract? How well have we created that continuum of care? So, I mean, I actually see that integration on, on several different levels. How well are we integrating care with our patients? How responsive are we to what's what's valuable to them? How well have we integrated care across Army, Air Force, Navy? Because in many of our areas, we have several facilities, but they're managed and owned by the different services. How well have we integrated across that? And then how well do we integrate our care uh, across the direct care and the purchase care? And then how well then are we now integrating our system to support readiness and health? With NDAA being a sort of rudder for the agency, what other reforms are required and are being pursued by the Defense Health Agency as outlined in the most recent NDAA 
Can you expound also on your emphasis remarks of how this alignment will improve readiness, decisions, budgeting, and standardization? First off, I am extremely grateful um, that Congress uh, really put so much into the NDA. Um, when you take a look at the Title Seven of the NDA 2017, and you step back and, and don't try to see each of the sections as individual, you actually see a system that's being described, and sure. everything nests within each other. It's, it, I found it very logical, and and so I'm I'm very appreciative of Congress being able to to do that for the military health system. And I do feel that that's going to have a, a profound impact on our beneficiaries. But I think that your point, Mark, about how does this help readiness is, is extremely important. I mean, because that's why we are here. That's what the military health system is, is how do we preserve that readiness? And not only do we preserve it, how do we catapult it to that next level? So this is probably one of the, the most impactful things that we can do to create a higher state of readiness. And I say that because um, we're, we have such a keen appreciation across the enterprise that um, our readiness is actually multifactorial. It, it doesn't just happen when, when a doctor comes in or a nurse comes in and puts on a uniform. That's, that's a part of it, but that's not the only part of it. And so if we're looking at what are some of the attributes, what are the characteristics of readiness that, that we need to consider and how is the best way to address it, then you start looking at things like, well, how is our education and training occurring? How do we do that? How do we make sure that if we're paying attention to what's going on in, in that military environment, do we have the right kind of training? Are we uh, sure about the effectiveness of the training and how are we measuring that? How are we constantly assessing that? And how do we know that we're preparing our folks to function in a particular way, in a successful way, depending on the domain that they've been deployed to? So we can start looking at education and training and figuring out you know, is that the best way? And are there other things that we should be considering, like, you know, modeling and simulation? Uh, how does that fit in then to where we might need to be downrange? So that's one of the things. And I think the Defense Health Agency, as the agency that supports education and training, would be something that, that um, would have an impact on readiness. The other piece, and I'd mentioned it earlier, is how do we make sure that we're supplying the right types of equipment that we can deploy with? And so since logistics is part of the portfolio of the DHA, then we can also start looking at what are some of the best types of medical devices that we want to be able to make available when we, when we go downrange. The other thing is, and this brings in our role as a combat support agency, we look to see what are some of the things that the combatant commands need. And what are some of the, the challenges they have? And, and this is where we start getting into the conversation about how do we resupply um, the equipment or the assemblages that are used in these various combatant commands? And how, are, how do we make sure that we have the right kind of system in order to provide that? We also look at their specific training that they need in the COCOMs, mm -hmm. and that's something that we can support and make sure that that's being delivered in a standardized way um, and reducing that variability that oftentimes drive costs and changes changes outcomes, right? Absolutely. So uh, I think those are, those are just a, a few of those examples, but I think that this has been one of those things that I see is actually going to, um, it's actually going to enhance our ability to be ready and to be able to do it in a way that um, we continue to, you know, contribute to our own efficiency and identify those places where we can recapitalize. Regarding the visible wounds of war, 
the integration of services is producing results. The invisible wounds have been a bit more challenging. Uh, can you tell us more about DHA's effort to support returning soldiers with traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress? How are you working with civilian medicine to address those challenges and these issues? And uh, what are some of those challenges that are being faced? You know, I think the biggest challenge right now is understanding how complex this is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually one of the the most profound lessons learned about the invisible wounds of war mm-hmm. is it's it's not a one-for-one and, and it's not the same for everybody. I mean, in our efforts to better treat it, we've learned that there's a diversity within traumatic brain injury that we had not yet appreciated. Rightfully so, as we've explored different types of treatment options, we've realized that, that there's just a lot of nuance into this condition. It, it's, it's not just a matter of, of having a bad head injury or a concussion and then, you know, feeling better afterwards. And I think that this is something that other communities and other populations are also starting to appreciate, uh, you know, and, and I think you see that with that heightened awareness in sports, mm-hmm. you know, for children or what's going on in, in college uh, level activities and certainly um, in, in professional sports. So I think there's a growing awareness that, there, that we have to be more mindful about this and, and that sometimes these correlations that we've been working on are not directly one for one. So not only are we developing a greater appreciation for the complexity of this condition, I think our ability to talk about it more openly and to share our experience with, with other um, uh, the civilians and other organizations and other schools and institutions can only be helpful because um, this is it's hard again I'm, I'm very I'm, I think that we have to be able to look at the data and understand what it's telling us but we have to have sufficient data to be able to drive or discern the patterns mm-hmm. and the only way we can get that type of data is if we're collaborating with everybody else but it, it does remain a challenge and I think that the other part of it that I've become sensitized to is that these invisible wounds of war are not only to the member, but to the family. Mm-hmm. And so how how prepared are we and how well do we support the rest of the family? Because that is one of the things that we learned during you know, while we were treating our, our, our wounded warriors is that it is definitely a multidisciplinary effort. But a large part of that is how well we incorporate the family and the network of a patient into their into their overall recovery. So we need to be able to pay attention to those those second and third order consequences. Mm-hmm. Leads into my next question around the opioid crisis and the, the military. Uh, your service members, their families aren't immune to this. Um, what are you doing in this area to address it? And you know, I found it fascinating doing research for the interview, where you candidly state that you know um, the opioid addiction is is a preventable disease. Yes. And how does Going beyond traditional pain management important in this area? It's extremely important. And I, I, I yes, it is a preventable disease. You know, I, I, I liked, I'm, I'm borrowing something from Admiral Carmona, who was one of our former U.S. Surgeon Generals. Um, he said he was a, a recovering trauma surgeon. I'm a recovering, <laughs> I know. And, and that was the recognition that trauma is a preventable disease. Interesting. And so, um, 
opioid addiction is a, a preventable disease. And so that really then, and being able to take that stance allows me then to lean forward mm-hmm. into some of those areas that, that you're asking about. So first off, we are part of that that effort that um, uh, the previous administration, President Obama, started with um, mental health parity and making sure that First off, that we recognize that there is that element that may be in play here. Secondly, understanding that substance use disorder is is part of that treatment plan that we need to make sure that we're have, giving access to and that we're, we're providing the right level of care to substance use disorder. It's not, not just a, a period of time where you prevent somebody from taking. It's, it's a, a whole lot of other pieces that need to be addressed. The other thing is, is, is we've made sure that our providers undergo training so that they can make sure and understand the impact that, that their actions in treating a patient and pain management might have on a particular patient. And then finally, we're looking at a lot of different tools that allow us to monitor. Mm-hmm. This is very fascinating. Looking at uh, patients' profiles in terms of the types of medications they've been prescribed as well as looking at the prescribing practices of providers and understanding where those two types of behaviors may indicate, yes, a higher propensity for an opioid problem. So um, the other piece that we've done, too, is we recognize there's a growing recognition, and I know that Admiral Winnefeld had sent out a, a very passionate description of his own personal experience. And one of the things that he had pointed out is the need to have um, more therapy or more treatment available for dual diagnosis. And and that's, you know, if there's a behavioral health diagnosis as well as a substance use disorder. And I'm I'm so happy to report that now in our TRICARE health plan, we're able to provide assistance and care and coverage for those, those folks who have a dual diagnosis. And we're actively going out to seek those centers that treat dual diagnoses to become a part of our TRICARE network because we realize that is a piece of our responsibility and our commitment to the care of our our beneficiaries. So I think that it is a a very serious issue. Um, You can look at the stats of of people overdosing and those numbers are, are, I mean, they they outnumber car accidents. You know, it's, 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 it, yes, and, and like I said, it is, it is preventable, but it is a multi-pronged piece. We have to look at our system. We have to look at our providers. We have to look at our patients. And then we have to make sure that we've got the right stop gaps in, in place so that we can put a pause on some of this and say, is this, is this really the right solution here? And then on the other side of that is, is when we have that this is an issue, then are we providing the most, you know, the most comprehensive and contemporary care that's available out there. So you mentioned earlier the Defense Health Agency is a combat support agency, and I'd like to delve a little bit into that. What is being done to enhance DHA's ability to serve operational needs of combatant commanders, and how is it maturing in this area? So um, this is this is actually kind of a new uh, role for us in the military health system, but I think it's a very important role. Um, first, it's important to understand that the services, Army, Air Force, Navy, they remain the force providers. They're the ones that actually provide the troops whenever um, there's a call for medical support in a contingency operation. With the Defense Health Agency, though, since we actually report to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, we look to see what can we provide to the combat uh, the combatant commands that are in direct support for their operations. And so what we've done is not only look to see what the chairman's 
strategy is for the national military strategy, we actually go out to the combatant commands and say, what are some of the medical pieces that you feel need to be either enhanced, improved, or taken out that, you know, that would impact your operations and, and what your plans are for this particular theater? And by doing that and finding out what their needs are, we've been able to identify certain elements. Training was was big one. Um, the blood products, making sure we had blood products, the assemblages, and that's the equipment sets that go out there. There was a, a variety of, of things that were a surprise to us, but until we asked the question, we didn't know that that was a need. So we have recently undergone uh, what we call the Combat Support Agency Review Team, uh, CSART, which is a way of assessing the effectiveness of a combat support agency. And I was extremely proud that, you know, within two years of us standing up, we were having our first CSART. And overall, still waiting for the, the final um, report on that, but found it very gratifying that our direct interaction with the combatant commands and understanding what their identified needs were and us looking to see what kind of skills, resources, functions and capabilities that we have, we were able to turn that into more comprehensive support in areas that they needed that. So this is, um, I believe, it's going to become um, a growing role Mm -hmm. because as the chairman talks about being an integrator, I see the combat support agency or defense health agency being an integrator through our combat support agency role. Uh, You've talked about talent in the DHA DNA. What is DHA doing to ensure that its professional workforce and clinicians are properly trained and highly skilled. Can you share how the people of DHA have been pivotal to the mission success, the culture, and the DHA guiding principles? Um, the the people of the DHA are, I mean, I, I know I might be a little biased, but they are <laughs> the best. I mean, they truly are. I, I send out a weekly uh, email to the staff in the DHA. And um, I, I invariably get one or two responses that come right back to me, you know, and um, and it's just my way of, of keeping in touch. And um, I have been over and over again just impressed with the talent and the professionalism and the commitment and dedication that we have in the people of the, of the Defense Health Agency. My commitment to them in return is how do I help advance whatever their personal and professional goals are? And, and how do I create the conditions for them to be as successful as many times as possible? So uh, what I like to do then is look to see within the DHA, what are some of my communities that I want to make sure we're giving them access to the things that will help advance their career. Uh, one of the great examples is I look at our acquisition personnel. And I understand, too, that in order for them to continue to compete in a very favorable way, then I need to make sure they have access to certain types of, of education and training that continue to allow them to maintain a level of proficiency in the acquisition environment. Now, I know part of the risk is that, you know, I give them that higher level and, and somebody else will, will want, to, want them. But I think that's a compliment because, you know, I want people to see the Defense Health Agency as a springboard for wherever they're going next. And so I take that same approach with the military members that rotate at the Defense Health Agency. I want that experience to be professionally and personally and career-wise rewarding. Um, and I want them to see that as a way to acquire additional skills, uh, additional knowledge, additional insights that they can then leverage when they either go back to the services or go back into or go into another joint environment. Um, I've looked at it through the clinical lens as well. 
you know, how do we make sure that, that folks are getting the, the top-of-the-line training that's most contemporary, that where that leading edge of technology is, is taking us? But this is a give and take. My ability to support where they're going um, and their success is, is my success. And so I try to be as engaged as I can. Uh, I, I do have an open door to policy. I, I'm, I'm sure my front office just wished I hadn't said that. I try to be accessible uh, to as many people as possible because they are the key to us being able to do what we're doing in the Defense Health Agency. I think the growth we've experienced since I've, I've come there as the director in the last two years is far beyond what anybody projected. And and it couldn't have happened were it not for the people that I have around me at the Defense Health Agency. They are incredible. One last question, Vice Admiral Bono, is what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service, military service, or even medicine? Ah, you know, do it. Do it. You'll you'll you won't be you won't be disappointed. I I personally feel that that having a military career or having any type of military service is one of the most um, liberating and growth experiencing uh, event that you'll ever have. Um, being able to combine public service with my own medical background and then being able to evolve into some kind of leadership um, capability. Is I don't think I would have gotten that same opportunity uh, anywhere else. I, I, I know I'm, I'm extremely biased to that, but I, I think that the other part of this is is no matter how long a person comes in to serve in the military, it leaves an indelible mark on you, and that is and that indelible mark is something that others will recognize and will will be drawn to. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, that. If people are considering that, I mean, of course, I'm in a Navy uniform. I would say go Navy. But I think any military exposure and experience is valuable. It's extremely valuable. And I'll tell you the other piece about being in the military that I've personally found is that it is the one arena where I've consistently seen that people get advanced based on their on the merit of their performance. And and so I I think that when you're able to show that ability to advance within a system where it is strictly on merit, I would hope that someone would realize or come away with a, a, a very deep-seated sense of, of um, satisfaction and confidence. And I think that's what um, a career or a job or time spent in the military has done for many people. I know it has for me. So I, I, would, I would advise people. And I would also say, you know, if I can do it, they can too. Certainly. So I would I would invite people to to consider the military as a as a career. Well, thank you for taking time um, out of your busy schedule to join us and wonderful answers, great conversation. But more importantly, Mark and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thanks. It, it really is my honor. Thank yes, you. Thank you. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Vice Admiral Raquel Bono, Director of the Defense Health Agency. My co-host from IBM has been Mark Newsom. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How are autonomous technologies advancing in healthcare? What is being done to enhance medical device design? Join host Michael Keegan next week 
as he explores these questions and more with Professors Jin O'Han and Manifa Van Cook from the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Maryland next week on a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.